Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is former Warner Brothers VP of Marketing and Industry Consultant, Ted Joseph. First of all, Apple is getting into music publishing. Yes, they're starting a music publishing division, much to the surprise of the rest of the industry. This publishing division will have subdivisions that oversee operations, commercial, publisher relations, and A&R. And A&R is kind of interesting because they're going to sign talent directly. The reason for that is that most artists and new music new music trends are discovered through publishing these days. So Apple is wisely getting into this. Now it looks like they're not going to buy songs. They're not going to buy catalog. They're going to develop everything from scratch. And everybody was kind of scratching their head and wondering why would they want to do that? And then it began to really make some sense. First of all, Apple really has a lot of goodwill in the music business, believe it or not. Now, maybe on some of the higher echelons of the major record labels, they don't really care to work with Apple, but they're forced to. But that being said, the rest of the industry really does like Apple. And there's some really good reasons for that. First of all, Apple does have a long history with the business now, and it's been a fruitful one for the most part. Everybody wants to be involved with Apple no matter what they say because they know that they can trust Apple. Apple's developed a lot of trust not only with record labels but with artists and songwriters as well. And that's because they've always been very transparent. Nothing has ever been shady in terms of sales, in terms of streams. There's never been any question at all. And the company's always been very fair. Apple has never been sued by an artist or a songwriter ever. And that's because, again, everything has been very fair and very transparent. And they're open to suggestions as well. And that's something that, of course, everybody in the business very much likes. There's also a lot of longevity there. You know that Apple is not going to go anywhere. And for the most part, all of Apple's execs are staying put as well. Everybody's been there for a while. Everyone knows who to talk to. And that goes a real long way in the music business. So look out for more of this. This new Apple music publishing division has some insider industry vets that are running it. Again, highly thought of. So this should be interesting to see where it goes in the future, but it looks like this might be the future for streaming networks. And of course, we're seeing Spotify now doing direct deals or talking about doing direct deals with indie artists as well. So now this is becoming sort of a trend in the streaming music business. have any questions or comments you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com check out my hitmakers club to access the private mixers facebook group monthly deconstructed hits mixing workshop and q a webinars and for a short time access to my core training module bonus go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more i'm going to make a statement and you're probably going to say, well, duh, that's obvious. Pop songs are all too similar. Well, you can say that and you can empirically understand it. But on the other hand, if there's a study to back it up, that sort of lends some credence to it. The Echo Nest has recently done a study and found out that the number one songs between 1958 and 2018 the closer we get to 2018, the more similar they are. The reason for this is what's now being called the track and hook method, which is basically making pop songs very factory-like and very manufactured. So what we're getting is the same song that's more or less mixed and matched with different vocalists and, of course, maybe some slightly different beats and maybe some different sounds and different samples, but it's more or less the same thing. There's a lot of reasons for this, and the study goes on to look at writing teams. It turns out during the 80s, for instance, most number one pop songs were written by one or two people, and there were only seven with three. 
when we come into 2017, 2018, 2016, what we're finding is 50% of the hits have four or more writers, and some have as many as 10, if you can believe that. The real problem with this is songwriting by committee kind of averages out any musical quirks that they have. So what ends up happening then is the variables between number one pop songs are very, very minimal. So this is one case where the DAW age isn't really helping things in terms of adventurism in music. But then again, I don't have to tell you that because it's pretty obvious and everybody's been aware of that for quite a while. Still, if you want to hit, this is probably the way to go and it's probably the way people are going to be going until we get a new trend in music. We know it's coming because in the past, we'd get a new trend every 10 or 11 years and it's past that time. So now everybody's kind of looking to the underground because it usually comes from a place that we don't expect it. So if you know where the new music trend is coming from, let us all know. My guest this week is longtime senior VP of marketing for Warner Brothers and current marketing consultant to both labels and indie artists, Ted Joseph. Ted has been associated with over 100 gold and platinum recordings for artists in a wide range of genres, from pop to urban to contemporary jazz and country. He's directed overall marketing campaigns for Madonna, Van Halen, Rod Stewart, Trace Atkins, Seal, Prince, Quincy Jones, Earth, Wind & Fire, and a host of others. We spoke both about the marketing of the past and the current marketing trends for both artists and labels, and we spoke via Skype from his home in Los Angeles. Let's go back to the beginning. You're from Detroit, I know. How did you get into the music business? Yes. It's interesting, Bobby, because I was a young guy back in Detroit, 1975, 76, uh, finished college a few years prior to that, and I wanted to go into, I was, I had a journalism degree, believe it or not. And I wanted to be a newspaper reporter, did that for about a year with one of the uh, daily newspapers in Detroit, didn't care for it too much, had a couple friends. This one guy brought a friend with him. We were talking and he says, hey, I work for Mercury Records. I said, what do you do for Mercury Records? I go to radio stations. I said, well, what is that? He said, I take music to, to radio stations. I said, that's my job. You've got my job. So what happened was I, I, I kept following up, finding out everything I could. Remember now, it was probably 75, 1975. And it's interesting because Back then, there were the independent distribution companies. Many of the labels didn't have their own distribution arms. Of course, you know, cassettes and vinyl back then were were the thing. And I heard about this distributor in Detroit, and I called him up and said, hey, look, I'm interested in the music business. They, you know, ah, there's nothing here. We have no openings. Finally, Bobby, I get a call back from a guy named Henry Droz. Well, Henry was leaving his distributorship to come out to L.A. to become president of Warner Distribution. What did I know? So he said, hey, but you can take the job here as the house promotion guy. I said, what does that mean? We distribute 300 labels that nobody's ever heard of, and you can represent all of them. Uh, I took the job, Bobby. It lasted about a year, and the best artist I had was Al Green, and I can't recall which track it was. And I was able to get in that way because my whole concern was just getting in the, into the system, and I could network and talk to people and figure it out. And in September of 76, uh, I got a job in Detroit with Warner Brothers Music as a merchandiser. A merchandiser back in the dark ages was somebody that would put up posters in those things we used to call record stores and do the merchandising and give out concert tickets, etc. 
So I did that for about a year and a half. Then there was an opening in sales. I went into sales for about two years. Then I transferred to Chicago to do radio promotion for Warner's. That lasted about two years. Then I went to New York for Warner's as a marketing director. That was about four and a half years. And then from there, it was Burbank. And in totality, I spent 27 years at Warner Brothers Records, which was a blessing. And you don't hear those types of tenures very often from people in the music business. And the great part was, Bobby, I was able to make that transition from the old model of the music business, the vinyl and the cassettes, to today's new model. And probably around 70, uh, 2004, 2005, I saw this technology coming. And I said to myself, I better get on board or learn how to sell houses or use cars. (laughs) One of the two. So many of my beloved counterparts decided, you know what? This new music business is not for me. I'm going to sell houses, which is a very respectable profession. But I decided after being in the business for so many years to immerse myself in this new technology, embrace it, don't fight it. And that's a good part of why I'm still here. And I feel very blessed in that respect, Bobby. So it's been probably 40 years or more And it's been so great because I've seen all the changes from Tower Records being the prolific music retailer they once were to basically music retail is oblivious now Yeah, in that respect. Well, you know, Ted, there's so much I want to talk to you about, especially the transition from one era to another. But let's go back. Because you worked in promotion and you worked in marketing and you worked in sales. So which one did you like the best? I uh, Radio promotion. Yeah? Why? For a couple reasons. It was wide open. You were in the field, out in the field all the time. Uh, well, probably 80% of your time doing what I do best, communicating with people sitting down with a program director. And you have to remember, Bobby, back in the 70s and 80s, many radio personalities determined what they played on the air. Sure. As opposed to what it is today. Now you've got one guy or gal who programs 80 stations. So I was able to grab a couple cheeseburgers and fries and go sit with that midnight disc jockey for a couple hours have burgers, talk about my music. And the most gratifying thing was as I left and got back in my car, I heard one of my songs on the air. Oh, wow. So that was absolutely fabulous back then. And, but it was really exciting because I didn't want to be at that time in my life segregated to an office, meetings all day. We had meetings once a week. Basically, marketing and promotion would come together. We would talk about where the airplay is, et cetera. Uh, we would try to try to put stock in those markets where we were getting airplay or where the artist was appearing. <clears throat> Tour support was very important even back then to make sure that if the artist was coming to Chicago, we had stock in the marketplace And we had some sort of publicity where PR, where that artist can appear on the local morning TV show and promote their music and promote their appearance. So it was pretty grassroots back then. But by far, I found sales to be so boring and so mundane because you could be selling music or selling widgets. You know, it was basically get the order, process the order. But I just love the creativity dealing with people at the radio station from top to bottom. And that seemed to be the most paramount thing I loved about radio promotion. 
Okay, but didn't radio promotion change there from label promotion to indie promotion in order to keep an arm's length away from, you know, whatever the <laughs> whatever was going on there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, we went through a point where independent promotion basically ran the business. There were three or four people that in the urban world, they ran a majority of they controlled those stations. In the pop world, there was three or four guys and gals that controlled a large segment of that radio station across the country. But there were still the secondary markets, um, places like Flint, Michigan, Saginaw, Michigan, that most of these major independents cared less about. They were concerned about Detroit, Chicago, New York, L.A., which the local label rep had very little effectiveness in those areas. So we spent a lot of time in those smaller medium markets where we would use those words that were used many times. We would try to break the song out of those smaller markets, break it out of a Grand Rapids, Michigan, Saginaw, Michigan, and then bring it up to stations like CKLW in Detroit, which was a powerhouse back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which that one radio station, CKLW, which was in Windsor, Canada, which was the tunnel from Detroit, was very responsible for much of Motown's success because Motown was right there in Detroit. CKLW broadcast, their reach was about 15 states it was a tremendous signal they had, and they're gone now, but it was an exciting, exciting time. But there was the independence, which proliferated right up until the early 2000s. And because of the consolidation of radio, the Cumulus, the iHeart stations, all of these con clear channel where You've got one or two people that program 100 radio stations. Many of the independents were basically rendered useless yeah. in that respect um, because no longer – the independents were very good about getting to that program director at that radio station and convincing them to play their music. But when you have one person that programs a proliferation of stations – my estimation that really hurt our business and it really hurt the newer artists because they never got a shot. And that's why I welcome this new era of independence for artists where through social media and other means, they can present their music to a pretty sizable audience. Well, let's go there for a second. Once upon a time, as, as you just mentioned, what you tried to do is you tried to break an artist through radio airplay, and even if you got it on a small station, you could still build from there. That's not right. happening so much these days. How would you break an artist today? It's interesting because, Bobby, the major labels who's left, Sony, Warner Group, Universal Group, they're no longer in the business of developing an artist Back in the 70s, 80s, and even early 90s, we had departments that would, which was called artist development. And we would spend enormous amounts of money developing the artists, their styling, how they sang, many. And the other part was it wasn't one and done. We may sign an artist back then to three albums, the first two maybe sold nothing. But maybe that third one was the one that would hit. Now, the major labels are looking for hit songs. They don't have the time or the patience to develop an artist. That's why you don't find many of the major labels now signing artists like they used to. So today, you know, people put a lot of emphasis on social media. I think social media is extremely important. I think Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the latest trends and research I see, YouTube, is an enormous factor how people find new music. 
So I think all of those mediums are very, very important to really concentrate. But radio still has a place. You've got all this proliferation of internet radio stations, which many people think nobody listens to. I thought that years ago. They've got a great audience, many of them do. These internet stations throughout the world. Uh, You've got Sirius Satellite Radio. In the world of contemporary jazz, they have a channel called Watercolors. And if you are a contemporary smooth jazz artist, Watercolors is just listened to by that audience. Unbelievably so. I have seen the impact where if your song is played on watercolors, and it's not easy to get on there because their playlist is very small and very tight, you will see immediate reaction to your music. Then we've got the traditional radio stations. They're still very important. In the world of pop, radio stations, very tight. They want to play nothing but the hits. So they're going to play the Katy Perry's, the Taylor Swift's, so on and so forth, the Justin Timberlake's, Drake's, and so on. So those are difficult to access. You can still have better luck going to the smaller markets. In the world of contemporary jazz, many of these program directors are very open to new music, Mm. providing they feel it's great, good music. Maybe you can get a test on their radio station. They'll monitor, see what the feedback is from their listeners, and maybe you can grow it from there. But I believe, listen, I've seen what live performances instantly can do for an artist. I mean, I've gone to a venue where I never heard of this artist, and I was there to see somebody else. And that act got up and did three songs, and I was blown away and said, wow, I've never heard of this guy. So I think it's not just one thing. Back in the 70s and 80s, it was all about radio. Radio was 99% of your marketing plan. Mm. There was nothing else. Now you have to procure everything from social media, radio, live performances, You have to touch upon every one of those, Bobby, to at least have a shot to be effective to get in front of your audience. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Let's go back a little bit. When you were working at Warner's and you were head of marketing, what would be the typical marketing campaign for an artist? And then I want to contrast that to what would it be today? Right. Well, it was pretty... It was basically almost like cookie cutter back then. We would spend an enormous amount of money on radio promotion. We would spend an enormous amount of money on publicity. Very, And don't forget, back in the 70s and 80s, newspapers like the LA Times, New York Times, they would actually review albums. Yeah. They would put it in the paper. You know, here's the new Billy Joel album. It's great. I give it five stars. How often do you see that today? They care less. So it would consist of radio, publicity, and a heavy emphasis back then on retail store co-op advertising. Oh, yeah. And co-op advertising was nothing more than we had to own that front window of Tower Records with our artists. We would buy those windows for two, three years in advance. That it was amazing the amount of money. You had stores like Borders, which back in those days was pretty, they had a great music store inside their bookstores. They would sell us space. It was no different than If you go into a grocery store and there's the soda section, Pepsi and Coke, they pay for that placement. It just doesn't happen by chance. So we actually, we paid retail stores every bit of signage in that store. Windows, a wall. When you saw a poster on a wall, that store didn't put it up there because they liked the artist. 
They put it up there because they got paid. And that was co-op advertising. I always found it kind of interesting why they called it co-op. Because we were the only ones paying, <laughs> you know, and, and, but the store felt, well, look, if you pay us, our part is you get the exposure, yeah. you know, and in many ways, that point of purchase, that p- profile did help, you know, people see a poster, it looks intriguing. It really worked well for Prince. We really exploited the retail marketplace with Prince posters everywhere and of course we had the females loved prince so we put prince posters up in beauty salons everywhere we would just wallpaper everywhere we could go but co-op advertising at retail stores were very important and that's why that was they were such a big blow when the music retailers went away yeah we just lost another marketing tool in that respect so now, now that was back then. Today, it goes back to all the social medias are very important. TV appearances, another very important. When an artist comes to town, make sure he or she try to get them on that morning daily TV show. Try to get them whatever pu- press and publicity you can possibly do. Uh Continuing, go to the radio stations, again, very important. And really, to much extent, I've seen, you know, we've done webinars with people. The artist will announce that, uh, you know, Drake is going to do a session on YouTube or Facebook Live. And we'll get 200,000 people on there where he'll spend 10, 20 minutes just talking to fans and maybe playing a few selections of his new music. So today, Bobby, nothing is standard. You have to crawl and scratch under every rock trying to find your audience because there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of artists out there. I mean, think about it. If you're an artist, you can spend $100, put your music through TuneCore, you're on all the digital retailers. What does social media cost? Not much, if any. You might want to hire a social media so-called professional, and you're out there. But it's really interesting, Bobby, because artists will come to me, and they'll be so happy and so proud and say, Ted, my music is on iTunes. And my reaction is, who cares? Mm. Unless there's something driving people to your music, nothing's going to happen. And that has gone through the last four decades. You've got to find a way to get those eyes and ears on your music. You have to raise your profile to some degree. And... Hey, look, look at all the artists on TMZ for good and bad reasons, but it's publicity. Look at all of the rappers today that never go on radio, Mm. but they're selling millions, and that's through the social media. I mean, Facebook, you put on Facebook, hey, everybody, let's meet at the mall at 8 o'clock tonight. You might get 10,000 people at the mall, and it doesn't cost a dime. So that whole schism has changed, but it's not one thing. Because remember, in the 70s and 80s, if you had radio, you had 95%. Yeah. Now, radio is important if you can get it and if you can afford it, but you have to touch bases on everything else. Ted, you're... Very well up on what the latest is online and the latest means of promotion and and everything about social. And that's not easy. It's not easy for anyone, but it's especially not easy for an industry veteran who went through the older days of physical media and record labels and everything. But now we're in a different world and you're there with it, which is, as you said, it's unusual because most people kind of you know, throw their hands up and say, I don't think I want to go there. So 
what was the transition like for you? Because it must have been painful, at least in the beginning. It, it was, because what happened is, Bobby, I saw a, a lot of really good music people just lost their jobs. Yeah. The layoffs, you know, the, the Warner Music Building in Burbank, there was over 300 people there in the heyday. You're lucky if there's 50 mm. today. Uh, because of people were laid off, departments, you know, uh, now there's a lot of outside contracting as opposed to having staff people do the work. Um, when I saw that starting, that curve, probably around 98, 99, that's when it, it kind of hit me. Because, you know, I got on the internet back in 94, 95. Uh, I was still at Warner's. Uh, it's really funny because Warner sent everybody a cell phone back then. And if you recall, those cell phones were these huge duffel bags. Yeah. And you would put it around your arm. They cost probably $2,000. And the reception was horrible. So everybody on staff kind of said, I don't need this thing. What am I going to do with a cell phone? Uh, so that was the beginning, the wake-up call for me that things are changing. Then I heard these stories about how Steve Jobs and Apple, in the early 2000s, even late 98, 99, went around to some of the major labels, had meetings with some of the esteemed godfathers of our business, and said, look, I've got this great idea. <clears throat> Your biggest, your biggest consumer complaints were CDs cost too much, and if I spend $20 on a compact disc and like only one song, I'm not happy. Yeah. So Apple had a better idea. Now your customers can buy one song, two songs, three songs, whatever. It's digital, and I'm going to call it iTunes. All the major labels, Bobby rejected that thought they all felt we're going to sell 20 dollars compact discs forever yeah people are not that sophisticated our customers are not that sophisticated the problem was bobby the music business was not listening to their customers and those complaints that compact discs cost too much i bought it there's one or two tracks i like they became very frustrated. And don't forget, at that time, who showed up? Napster. Yeah. Napster showed up, shocked the music business. So the, the music company's reaction was, we have to crush Napster. They're the devil. Well, that was just a precursor to what was coming. And right after Napster, what came in? iTunes. Yeah. So that was the transition. iTunes sales, as of today, this year, are 32% down. Yeah. What does that tell us, Bobby? Streaming. We're moving on. We're moving on. And when I spoke to people in Europe a few years ago, they were all in on streaming. In America, streaming was like, well, what's that? So now, you know, people want everything to be portable. Yeah. That's what they want. They want to take it with them. They don't even need to own it. They'll just rent it. Hey, I'll pay seven bucks a month to Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, and just rent the music. I don't need to own it. And that's our new consumer. Now, we still have the older consumer, 50, 55 and older. It's amazing. In the world of Contemporary jazz, those people buy the music, a large amount of it, from Amazon, and they want a compact disc. So many of the smooth jazz labels still have to make a CD. And the only place to sell it is through Amazon, yeah. for the most part. But we're even seeing trends where that older music consumer is now into streaming. Now into streaming and less into buying it on a digital platform. So that's a real that's a real sign for us to get ready 
for more adjustments in this music business. Well, of course, there's a big one here that you just touched on, really, and that's the fact that everything was built upon the album as a container, as a product. So you had these 8, 10, 12 songs, whatever it might be, and now we've transitioned away from that where it's it's a singles world. So that has to affect everyone from the artist on up through the food chain. The real problem I've found with artists is they still have this mentality, I have to make an album, I have to make an album. And you go, wait, yeah, but, but, but albums aren't selling, they're, they're decreasing every year. Well, what's the point? Just do a song whenever you can, get it out. So how does that work now with your, your jazz clients where, in fact, that's been album-oriented and now that's changing, as you just said? Yes, absolutely. Every day. An artist will call me and say, Ted, I'm working on my album. And my response is, and not in an unkind way is, why? Mm. Why are you working on an album? And then I go into this long dissertation about the music business and where we are economically in this business today. Most of them will get it. And I tell most of the contemporary jazz artists, if you're going to make an album, put 10 tracks on there. You don't need to put 15 yeah. tracks on there. Yes. Uh, and so this getting this new way of thinking out of an artist's head is very difficult. They think somebody's everybody's waiting for the release of their album. And if you remember, Bobby, we would release new albums every Tuesday yep. back in the 70s and 80s. And there was like a drum roll here comes the new Fleetwood Mac album on June 12th. Now nobody cares. Just put the music out. Radio stations care less if you have an album. They care less. And you're right. We were in the singles business in the 80s, came back to an album business. Now we've reverted back to a singles business. And it's so important, but I probably spend half of my day trying to educate the artist that that's the wrong thinking of the 70s and 80s. That being said, do you read Bob Lefsitz's newsletter by any chance? Yes. Okay, yes. so the one that just, sure that just came out, he mentioned about the new Kanye West album, where in fact, it's short, it's 22 minutes and there's eight songs, I think. So he, he was getting flack for that. But the thing about it is, when Lefsitz looked at Spotify streams, Every song had virtually the same amount, meaning that people were listening to all the songs equally rather than a Taylor Swift album where the hits got the most streams and, and the other ones, you know, right. very little. I look at that and I think, okay, is that because of the artist? Is that because the time involved is short that you could absorb it easily? What is it? I, I'm not sure right. myself. What do you think? Well, my thoughts are it is does have to do with the time spent listening. Yeah. And it's interesting because radio stations, they live by those three words, time spent listening. How long does their listeners listen to that station before they hit the button and move on? And we're finding that the music consumer with all these distractions out here today, Bobby, look, we didn't have video games and everything else that, the attention rate tends to be a lot less than when it was 10, 20 years ago. So I tell artists all the time, make your tracks shorter than, you know, people will come with, with tracks for five minutes. Not many people are going to sit and listen to a song for five minutes. Um, so I think it has to do with the attention span. People are busy today more than they ever were. And the distractions are so much greater. Listen, back in the 70s, we had the entertainment consumer captive. You either bought music or went to the movies. Yeah. That was it. There weren't a whole lot of other options. Or you went home and watched television. But now with all these options, with entertainment medium out there, it's unbelievable. So their time spent listening is a lot less than what it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. That's my opinion, Bobby. I think you're right. 
You know, it's interesting because I was producing a band recently and of course they had to do an album and I kept on <laughs> arguing for fewer songs. Finally, it was like, okay, what are this, the albums that you really liked? And they gave me a bunch of them. And I looked and every single album was less than 40 minutes long. That's like the perfect bite size. <laughs> you don't have to be, yes. you know, for an album anyway, it's probably less than that now, but boy, I would never go beyond that 40 minute level because, you know, traditionally people, that's what people listen to beyond that. You go, you know, it's, that's it's a it. commitment at that point. It, it is. Well, think about it, Bobby. I, I pulled out an old Crosby, Stills and Nash album from 1974. They had 18 songs on the album. 18 songs. Wow. I mean, that I, I forgot about that. And but it was so that's when we had the music consumer captive. Yeah. Where were they gonna go to hear music? So they we whatever we put out, they consumed with very little complaints or problems. Uh, radio stations ran the music business back then. And we would put out these compact discs, or not, well, basically vinyl back then. I remember buying a vinyl album for three ninety nine. Yeah, sure. Back in the mid seventies, you know. Uh, then we sold the compact disc, saying it's better sound, and we put a manufactured suggested retail price of nineteen ninety eight on it, you know. Uh, it really tickled me, Bobby, because I'm thinking, I remember, do you remember the um, the listening stations sure. in record stores yeah. where they had the headphones? And we paid a lot of money to get our music on those listening stations. It, did it do anything? I don't have a clue. My whole problem with the listening stations were, I'm going to put those earphones on my ears after 300 people put them on theirs. <laughs> I just thought there was some sanitary deal. I said, I'm yeah. not doing that. <laughs> but I remember that was supposed to be the big breakthrough back then. We got listening stations. And if you want to have, uh, you know, uh, prints on the listening stations at Tower Records, that's going to be $50,000. We paid it. Wow. We had no other option, no other alternative. We didn't have the internet back then. Sure. And we looked at listening listening stations as some great technological breakthrough because we were desperately trying to find the audience. And I think we lost our way. The leadership at these companies, for the most part, and no disrespect to them, were not visionaries. They wanted everything to stay the way it was. It was convenient. And think about it. You sold a compact disc for nineteen ninety-eight. The labels manufactured it for one dollar. Yeah, sure. So the margins were unbelievable. And the major labels owned their own manufacturing plants. Yeah, yeah. So think about it. They had a basically monopoly on what they were doing. So, of course, they were resistant to change. But when Napster came around, it hit them so hard. They didn't know how to react other than, let's crush Napster. Let's go after Sean Parker, shut him down. Let's try to put him in jail. But really, they were just responding to the consumer's needs and wants. Okay, Ted, so... Look in your crystal ball now. Speaking of the, the consumer's needs and wants, we're in the streaming world now. Where do you see the music business headed? I think it's heading where it's heading today. Live performances are going to be where an artist is going to make their money. If an artist, other than a superstar, Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, Kanye West, you're not going to make much money selling music. Right now, as you know, Bobby, you're not going to make hardly any money on your streaming. Oh, no. It's that's very not, minute. That's not true. Ed Sheeran, <laughs> Ed Sheeran made $20 million on Spotify alone last year. No, yeah, I, I've done yeah. the, I've done the well, numbers on that. No, there's plenty of money that, that's being made. It's not per stream. 
and there's lots of variables, but there's loads and loads of money being made. And and if you look at what was brought there in is. by the industry, let's see, it was $17 billion, and I think it was 51% of that was from streaming as an industry. That's it, absolutely. And the great part is that the Ed Sheerans of the world, you know, how many of those are out there? But when we're talking about an emerging artist that's trying to find their, you know, their audience, which may take years before they actually find that audience, their best bet is try to do shows. I don't care if the yeah. venue is a small venue, grow your audience. It's not going to happen overnight. And everybody wants it to happen yesterday. And it's interesting now how Universal, Warner, Sony have all bought into the streaming companies, Spotify. They're looking for equity in those companies as they have been. So I think in the future, for right now, it's streaming. As I said, digital sales are down 30% yeah. this year alone. So you've heard the rumors, which I'm not sure if they're true or not. iTunes, uh, Apple was thinking about in the years to come, shutting down iTunes. Yeah, heard that too. You know, iTunes, think about it, and maybe, maybe not, but they see what's, and they want to put most of their money into Apple Music on the streaming side, as opposed to, well, should we spend $500 million and, and upgrade our iTunes digital platform? It's really hard to tell, but I think it's absolutely streaming and live performances. Because if you're selling, you know, a hundred compact discs, what's your streaming revenue going to be? And if you can just find that audience and we go back to social media, that's important. Absolutely. Uh, I, I cannot, I cannot understate how important YouTube is. People think Facebook is important, but I tell people all the time, Facebook is just preaching to your friends. They already know you and like you. You got to find people that don't know you, never heard of you. And YouTube is a pretty good platform for that. I know people, Bobby, that put on their headphones and look at YouTube for two, three hours a day searching for new music of all ages. So it's really not segregated in an age or gender uh, capacity yeah. in that respect. We can talk all day, Ted. Last question. What's the best piece of business advice that you've received from somebody or maybe you've learned along the way? Probably, I believe the most important things, and it may not be just one thing, is that you really have to be honest with the artist and give them accurate information as to what's happening in the marketplace, your assessment of their music because so many people are not honest with the artist. And I try to be a little bit different, Bobby. I'll spend more time with the artist because I want to educate them on what's happening to our business. Many of the artists are very bright, very on top of it, but there are some that are not. They don't really follow these economics of the music business today and they believe there's this pot of gold right around the corner and I don't do it in a way of crushing their dreams I just try to manage their expectations and give them real honest advice you know if there's a radio campaign it can be difficult telling an artist radio is not really liking your music mm. you know many artists they're hurt by that. They may even be offended. Well, I've made great music. My my neighbors and my relatives love my music. Well, why would they not love your music? You know? Yeah. And so I think what I've learned is just giving the artist honest, real, accurate information. Because they need feedback to know where they're going to go next. And the only way they're going to know what moves and to make and not make is by getting information. I can't tell you, Bobby, how many artists have said to me, God, Ted, I wish I met you a couple of years ago. Yeah. And it, not that I have all the answers, because I do not, but 
I try to stay on top of the trends and I talk to a lot of people to get their impressions, their feelings, so I can have some sense of when I'm speaking with an artist, I'm, I feel good about giving them the right advice. And that's what's most important to me. Are you doing mostly independent marketing then? And I see that you're doing work for Maurice White's label, but I guess that you're doing it also for other musicians and labels yes, and whatever. Yes, I'm I, I'm not, you know, exclusive to one label. Um, you know, I have a team of people in the world of pop music, country music, urban black music. Um, if you come to me with a Kenny Lattimore song and you need a campaign, uh, I'm like the quarterback. I have all the people in place, all the players, and we work your music from radio, marketing, if you need a publicist, a publicist. And for the most part, Bobby, being in the business for 40 odd years, I've made some pretty good relationships, connections, and this business still is about relationships, yeah, yeah. you know, and you got to be careful because I've seen so many independent artists just basically ripped off by people. And, you know, most of the independent artists don't have unlimited budgets, but many of them, not because of lack of intelligence, but because of their passion for their music, they're going to give that guy or gal their last dollar. And it ends up in a very unfortunate situation. You can find out more about Ted and his services at tedjoseph.com. That's Ted Joseph, T-E-D-J-O-S-E-P-H, all one word, tedjoseph.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osensky's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosensky.com and select the podcast tab, or you can go to bobbyownercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At Bobby Sensky.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com. You'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>